Now, I would say Kalen DeBoer is in a pretty good spot right now, but no, the answer to the question off the top, no, people will not be patient with him, even though they probably should be understanding the landscape that's changing here in college sports. Hello and welcome to Always College Football. I'm Greg McElroy. Today is Thursday, January 18th. We hope you're enjoying the show wherever it is you're getting the show. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcast, ESPN YouTube channel, anywhere where you get it. We appreciate you very, very much. Continue to like, continue to rate, continue to subscribe, hit that thumbs up, you name it. We got it. We are really looking forward to this show because we're going to hit all the new hires In the college football world, there's 12 in the Power 5 right now, and there might be 13. By the time we release this show, who knows? Jim Harbaugh could take a job in the NFL. Who knows? In the event in which that happens, we'll put out a special edition, Always College Football, just for you. But there's been a lot of changes over the last six days. If you think about just one hire in general, Nick Saban retiring led to Kalen DeBoer coming to Alabama, so the Jed Fish going to from Arizona to Washington, which led Brent Brennan to go to Washington, which led to Kane Womack, the defensive coordinator at Alabama. He left his post at South Alabama, and then Mo Linguist, who left Buffalo to become the D.C. at Alabama. So like a lot of moving parts all because of one retirement. So... That's the way it goes. The carousel starts to spin. It gets faster and faster and faster. So let's dive in. One big question for every new hire here in the Power Five in 2024. Okay, one big question for all the new hires currently in the Power Five. And there are a bunch of questions, and we'll probably get to more down the road, but we're going to start with the big ones off the top here with some of the biggest changes that have gone down on this year's coaches carousel. So Coops, let's kick it off with Alabama. All right, this is the big one here. Will the fans and the media be patient with Kalen DeBoer? No. (laughs) Quick answer, no. Because the expectation is outrageous, right? And to be expected. I mean, we think about Alabama, 10 10 wins, 16 straight seasons, 8 of the last 10 years they've been in the playoff. But here's the thing. The landscape is changing. So you don't have to go 11-1, 12-0 to make the college football playoff. You can have two losses, in some cases three, and still have a chance to make it to the dance, okay? So yes, there's going to be a little bit of a challenge, I think, for people to kind of become accustomed to the new normal. But you don't have to you know, ride the fine line the way you once did. You have margin for error, and I think right now in the immediate, it's been tough for Alabama fans, but let's think about what Kalen DeBoer is. He's quickly shown that he can win at the highest levels of college football. Uh, he's only been at the Power Five, you know, three seasons. Two at Washington and one at Indiana's offensive coordinators, but he hasn't exactly l- looked in any way, shape, or form out of sorts while patrolling the sidelines, even there at Fresno, at Washington, and the time he spent as a coordinator at the G5. And if you want to go back to the NAI level, he did more with less for a really long time. So you look at what he was. He was unbeaten at Washington against ranked opponents until the national championship. He actually fared pretty well even at Fresno against ranked competition. He's not Nick Saban. No one's going to try to sit here and say that Kalen DeBoer is the second coming of Nick Saban. But he's, I think, going to do it his way. And I think if you look at the, the personality type that he's bringing to the position, it's very different from that of Nick Saban and thus there's going to be a decent amount of turnover. Uh, 
There's going to be a bunch of guys that said, look, I signed up for the program to look a certain way, to be coached by a certain guy. And that's not going to be the case, especially in the back end. We'll talk about the transfer portal and we'll talk about the guys that have kind of gone into the portal a little later in the show. But there's really not a whole lot to dislike about what Kalen DeBoer's accomplished in his time as a college head coach. It's 104 and 12. Uh, he knows what he's going to do. And whoever stepped into the shoes, we're going to be an impossible task. It's going to be an impossible task. And people are going to sit here and say, well, you know, can he put a staff together? Because people are going to push their own agenda. If he wasn't their top guy, if Lane Kiffin was their top guy, or if Dabo Sweeney was their top guy, or if they wanted to go and get Dan Lanning, even though that was never going to happen. I'm just telling you with some knowledge of how it was going down, Dan Lanning wasn't even an option. Because not only is there a $20 million buyout, there's actually a, a different contract built into his contract that would have exceeded 2025 to $30 million potentially for him to even get to the table to negotiate. So Dan Lanning was not going to happen. And then people are going to sit there and say to Ferris Robinson, who was the defensive coordinator, or was in line to potentially become the defensive coordinator and say, well, he was going to go to Georgia. That just proves to you, I mean, Keelan DeBoer, he's just not going to be able to put together a good staff. Well, he goes out and he hires Kane Womack. And then people are saying, well, he just got lucky there. You know, Kane grew up in the, he's in South Alabama, G5 right now, can't pay what coordinators can. So he just got, well, then he added Mo Linguist, who is another guy that I think is, is really, really well respected, who's going to be the defensive coordinator alongside Kane Womack and will coach the defensive backs. Now, he was the head coach at Buffalo. Uh, people are more familiar, I think, with Kane Womack because he went 10 and 3. And people thought, well, maybe he might at South Alabama, maybe he'll jump right into a head coaching job in the SEC. But it appears at the moment, after a 7-6 season last year, that maybe the faster track to him to get his own job, to get his own head gig, is by way of the Alabama coordinator. So I think that he's done a really admirable job putting together a defensive staff, even though it's not done yet. I think he's done some good things on that side of the ball so far. A couple of head coaches that have had success at their respective spots. Linguist was at one point Michigan's co-defensive coordinator and defensive backs coach. Last year was also a finalist for the Cincinnati head coaching job, and now he's the co-DC that's not even calling plays. Now, I would say Kalen DeBoer is in a pretty good spot right now, but no, the answer to the question off the top, no, people will not be patient with him, even though they probably should be understanding the landscape that's changing here in college sports. All right, moving on to Washington. How will Jed Fish navigate the transition to the Big Ten? Biggest question, I think, with any of the teams, Washington included, Oregon, SC, and UCLA, is will the Big Ten adapt to them or will they have to adapt to the Big Ten? Now, I thought that Washington might look internally. To be honest with you, Ryan Grubb, I thought, would have been a terrific hire. Ryan Grubb ultimately is now going to Tuscaloosa to serve as the offensive coordinator for Kayla DeBoer. But I thought because of continuity purposes, Washington might look internally and say, hey, we already have a good guy on the staff. Let's just keep the status quo and try to retain as many guys as we possibly can. Well, there was already going to be a ton of turnover on the offensive side of the ball anyway. So they decided to go outside and they hired Jed Fish. Now, Jed Fish, here's the problem. He's never really been anywhere for an extended period of time. His longest tenure in the profession is four years in Baltimore with the Ravens where he served as, an, as a quality control coach. So it's not like he has a long track record, but he has done a pretty good job of being able to connect with players. He's got a really good network because of how well-traveled he's been. He's got a really good network of 
contacts within the coaching profession. And I think that will resonate with a donor base that was 60 minutes away from playing, uh, from winning a national championship. He has familiarity too in Seattle. Uh, he has also been on the West Coast, not just Arizona, but he also spent some time at UCLA and has been at Minnesota and at Michigan in the past at the Big Ten. So he does understand the league. He's been around the league. He's been in the NFL. And I think he obviously just did, I think, maybe as good a job as anybody in one of the toughest positions in the sport. But all of us are still wondering. I mean, at this point, as he transitions, is the Big Ten, like I said, going to adapt to the Pac-12 with more athleticism, an emphasis on throwing the football, an emphasis on the perimeter, playing on the perimeter? Can play in the trenches, but playing on the tr perimeters where most teams lived um, with pretty good success in the Pac-12 to the Big Ten where it's really going to be about the line of scrimmage, controlling the line of scrimmage, a physical emphasis. All those things are legitimate question marks at this point. Here's the one thing I do know, though, is it was really big that Jed Fish was able to retain the offensive staff that he was able to retain. Being able to bring over Brennan Carroll, who is the four to four-year-old son of former Seattle Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll, who interviewed for the Arizona head coaching vacancy, him being able to come along to a city where his dad brought home a Super Bowl. Think that's going to be helpful as far as invigorating the NIL? Probably. Quarterback coach Jimmy Darty was there. Running back coach Scotty Graham. Wide receiver coach Kevin Cummings. Tight ends coach, special teams coordinator Jordan Papau. Plus, they bring their strength coach Tyler Owens. You also bring a couple guys on the defensive side, Jason Kafusi, John Richardson. John Richardson will coach the corners. Kafusi will be the outside linebacker's defensive end. So he has some familiarity with the staff that he's bringing in. The problem is you look at their roster, man. There's a lot of pieces off of a national championship runner-up that will need to be replaced. The good news is he's stepping into a spot that is a whole heck of a lot easier than the spot he stepped into the last time around at Arizona. And he did magical things there, finishing with a 10-win season and a final ranking of number 11 in college football. I think it's a good hire, and it is a guy that has an understanding of the Big Ten, which is beneficial, but I still, like I said from the very beginning, I don't know what's going to win, athleticism or strength. We're going to find out here in the next year for the Big Ten teams that are jumping in to the deep end of the pool. All right, let's head south to Arizona. One big question here. What's the ceiling for Brent Brennan at Arizona? Well, we just found out that the ceiling's actually pretty high. <laughs> I'm not going to go as far as, say, Michael Jordan style, the ceiling's the roof. But I do think when you look at what Brent Brennan's done, he's spent his entire career on the West Coast, and he has some experience in being at San Jose State. That program, historically, probably one of the worst in the sport. An unbelievable depletion of resources, uh, difficult competition there with all the pro teams in the market. Um, at Arizona, there's a lot of things to really like. Now, there are some challenging financial situations, but the football facilities are ready to go. The one thing I'm curious about for Brent Brennan is now that he's going into the Big 12, and I actually spent some time with Kyle Whittingham discussing this move, and Utah is a far more well-established program, well-established brand and in the national picture of college football. I know Arizona's been in New Year's Six games. That was back in 2014. They just finished in the top 11. There's a lot to like about that. And I believe that there's still a really high ceiling. 
But I think Brett Brennan is going to have to be really, really smart about not just tapping into the West Coast, but also tapping into the state of Texas. That's what Kyle Whittingham said. He said, the first thing that I adjusted when I found that Utah was going to the Big 12 was I had to adjust our, our footprint on the recruiting trail. More Texas, less California. More Arizona, less California. So I think for Brent Brennan, it's going to be interesting to kind of balance that. Still do the things that you've always done? Or do you need to adjust and move and kind of maybe pull from Houston, pull from Dallas, pull from San Antonio where there's really good high school football? Now, Arizona, I think the difficult thing is that they are returning a roster that is really well-equipped at the moment. Granted, there's 30 days since Jed Fish ultimately left for the players to hop into the portal. But based on what's there at this second, the time that we're taping this, Right now, 18 to 22 guys are returning. So they are going to enter into 24 with legitimate, legitimate expectations. I'm not talking about at the top of the Big 12, but an outside chance of maybe getting to the college football playoff. Now, I think Brent Brennan is the right personality that's going to be able to connect well with the players. I think he's going to be able to bring in and, and make sure that the guys that are cornerstone pieces to their operation, Noah Fafita, and Tetaroa McMillan, those guys are going to have to buy in. And if those two buy in, I think the rest of the team will buy in. So it should make for a pretty nice transition. Now, Brent Brennan's, I think, well-positioned for this opportunity, but there's no denying that Arizona is on the heels of their best performance in recent memory. Can he sustain it? And 34 and 48 overall record doesn't jump off the page for Brent Brennan. But when you think about the challenges that they have at San Jose State putting forth a consistent winner, I don't think anyone's going to be able to handle a difficult situation better than what Brett Brennan did uh, in transitioning now to the head coach at Arizona. All right, let's move down to Aggie land, where they haven't had back-to-back 10-win seasons since 93-94. But can Mike Elko get Texas A&M to win consistently? Well, I'm very optimistic about it. Now, I've called games with Mike Elko. Uh, I've been around him for quite a while. I've gotten to know him, even dating back to his time when he was at AM and at Notre Dame. So I've been around him for a while. I feel like I got a good beat on who he is. He's meticulous as it relates to details. I think their defense is so well coached. It's such a thoughtful scheme where everything that they try to take away is for a, for a very specific reason. So if they're trying to get you to throw hot because they're blitzing two off the right-hand side and they're forcing the quarterback to throw it to his right, they're going to have a corner waiting right where that outlet receiver is to blow him up. Did it time and time again last year. They do a really good job with their pressure schemes, and a lot of their pressure schemes are really well thought out. He's the 2022 ACC Coach of the Year, had an amazing 9-4 and four year, had a great defense. A great defense when he was at Texas A&M there in 2020. But he also, I think, understands the landscape of what he's getting into. They didn't give him a plaque with no date on it saying national championship or bust. The Aggies have deep pockets. They have really well-resourced NIL. And they have a location there where they're 90 minutes from Houston, a few hours from Dallas. They should be able to attract a lot of really quality pieces. Now, if you look at what kept, what Mike Elko has been in the past. He's a great teacher. He's a great defensive mind. I think he's smart. 
I think he's really savvy. I think he's going to know how to play the game. Because at A&M, as much of it is about playing the game and making sure everybody's all in and making sure everybody's buying in to what it is that you're putting forth. Now, they just paid $77 million so that Jimbo Fisher won't be their head coach. Uh, I think that they're going to be patient with Mike Elko. He's going to, I think, be the right guy at the right time. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to win 10 games a year in a more challenging SEC than the SEC has ever been before with the entrance of Texas and the entrance of Oklahoma. So I think Mike Elko is in a really good position. But I also think at the same time, the expectation level is not what it was when Jimbo Fisher was there, which is a good thing for Texas A&M. All right, let's move over to Durham, to the guy who replaced Elko over at Duke. One big question, will Manny Diaz be able to keep up the success that Mike Elko had? Well, I'm very, very optimistic. It's kind of cut from the same cloth. Like, it really worked the last time we went and got a Power 5 coordinator. Let's try it again. They go and get Manny Diaz, who does have head coaching experience. That's one thing Elko did not have. Manny Diaz does have that and does have head coaching experience in the footprint. So of all the Power 5 coordinators that were being evaluated for the possibility of getting this job, it felt like Manny Diaz was probably the best guy. Given his experience level and his major conference head coaching job that he's had in the past, I think he was probably best positioned. He did an amazing job, too. In the last two years, he was incredible for Penn State. Really well connected in the ACC. He went to Florida State, had his first on-field assistant job at NC State, and then returned to Miami as the defensive coordinator before he replaced Mark Richt as the head coach. So he has been around the ACC. He knows it. I think he does a pretty dang good job. You look at his time at Miami. Now, the team was bowl eligible in each of the first three years, went 16-9 and in ACC play from 2019 to 2021. Plus, if you look at Miami's challenges, the uneven results that we've seen for the last two decades are really not emblematic of what Manny Diaz could or couldn't do. Uh, I think it's really impressive what he's been able to do in his time. Now, Duke is always going to be a program that is likely going to have to find the diamonds in the rough. They're not going to be a place that's going to be really attractive to the five-star guys that are choosing Duke over Georgia, Alabama, Florida State, Florida, what have you. Like They're going to have to go out and they're going to find the developmental pieces that are probably a little under the radar. And that's what I think Elko did a really good job of in two years. There are a lot of challenges coming up. No denying that. You lose Riley Leonard who they spent a lot of time on, a lot of time developing, now went into the portal, went to Notre Dame. It's going to be very interesting to see if they can continue to go down the rabbit hole and developing pieces and putting together a really sound defensive system. Offensively, I think they're going to be just fine. They bring in Malik Murphy from Texas, who I think was a great coup, a great coup for Manny Diaz to be able to bring in a guy that does have some starting experience at the Power Five and has done a decent job at times in spring game environments and in practice. Steve Sarkeesian raves about the guy. So if Steve Sarkeesian likes him, he, he must be pretty dang good. I think he knows quarterbacks probably as well as any of us. But if you look at what Duke gets now with Manny Diaz hopping in, he's a guy that knows the ACC, got fired because Miami felt they could do better by getting Mario Cristobal, and he has a lot of experience having been at NC State and Miami in the past. So I think it's a really strong hire for 
for Duke. And I also think Manny Diaz now will probably implement a lot of the same things that Mike Elko tried to implement the last couple of years. All right, let's go down to Houston. One big question. Can Willie Fritz get Houston to the top of the Big 12? Well, one thing that I think is very important in the state of Texas right now, if you're not A&M, if you're not Texas, uh, even Texas Tech has gone down this rabbit hole. Baylor hasn't, but to an extent, having Texas guys at Texas schools has been really impactful. You think about Trailer at UT San Antonio. You think about what G.J. Kinney did in a pretty short period of time there at Texas State. You think about what's gone on in Lubbock. You think about what's gone on in some of the other places. Guys that have Texas roots have traditionally fared pretty well. And I think that's what Houston acknowledged when they decided to bring Willie Fritz home. He coached and won big at every level in the state of Texas, uh, including the high school level at Willis, that's near Houston, back in the 80s. He won at the junior college level. A couple national titles there at Blinn from 1993 to 1996. One at the FCS level. Several years at Sam Houston State before he returned as the head coach and went 40-15. and 15. That's an incredible turnaround at Tulane. Of course, he has ties to Louisiana as well, which is a really important part of the country that Houston will probably recruit from. Now, he's a program builder and has won a lot of games, but he is 63, and there were teams in the past that were a little, co little cognizant of his age. They, they want someone that's going to be there for the long term, and it feels like coaching is getting younger and younger and younger by the day as you have to re-recruit your roster on almost an annual basis, or at least it feels that way for sure. But I'm very excited to see what Willie Fritz can do with a Power 5 program. He's got to continue to do the things that he's done in the past. But if you look at the Big 12 right now, you look at Cincinnati, UCF, Houston, and BYU, those are the new entrants last year. And now the Big 12 schools that are coming in now in Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State. The Big 12 is unrecognizable from the Big 12 that I grew up with. It's a kid from the state of Texas, a kid from Dallas, Texas. The Big 12 I grew up with looks nothing like the Big 12 that currently exists. Except Colorado's back in the league, which broke my heart a couple times as a young college football fan. But... I will say this. I think that this is a terrific hire. I've wondered forever, forever, why teams continued to pass on Willie Fritz. Sometimes it was timing. It's been well documented that he was the guy at Georgia Tech last year. He was done. They wanted him, but Willie Fritz could not leave Tulane because they were getting ready to play on the Cotton Bowl. And Georgia Tech felt at the moment like they needed to lock a guy down and they needed to move forward with Brent Key in charge. It ended up working out really well for them. And now it's worked out well for Willie Fritz, who now takes over at a place in Houston, a place he's very familiar with. I think he's going to do a really good job alongside Tillman Fertitta, which is a key booster and someone that will obviously resource the program in a significant way. So it's going to be very, very important to see just how things go. But he just won 23 games the last two years at Tulane. I think he'll have Houston back and competing for championships probably in the near future. All right, moving up to Indiana. Will the jump to Power 5 slow down Kurt Signetti? Well, answer me this. Did the FCS to FBS transition slow down Kurt Signetti? Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> He's been a head coach 
at the college level for 13 years prior to taking over this job at Indiana. And this and being able to take James Madison from FCS to FBS as seamlessly as he did is pretty remarkable. Since the start of the 2022 season, he's gone 19 and 4. And if you look at his time at both Elon, where he was prior to James Madison, and James Madison, he went to five straight FCS playoffs. He was at Alabama, actually, when I was in school. He was there for four years with me. He was our main signal guy and our wide receiver coach. So he's been around Nick Saban for four seasons. He was a recruiting coordinator there early on in the Saban tenure as well. And he'd also been a Power 5 assistant coach at NC State and Pitt. So he understands the player development component, which is huge, especially at a place like Indiana, where you're not going to be able to attract all the best players in the world. But this is, I think, something that's really, really interesting. Now he's walking into a roster that really needed a lot of talent. Now, the programs had a lot of people leave. Uh, A couple off the top of my head, Michael Penix and Jack Tuttle. Uh, Michael Penix went to Washington. Jack Tuttle went to Michigan, where he served as the backup quarterback to J.J. McCarthy. They also lost tight end A.J. Barner, uh, who went on to have a pretty dang good year this year at Michigan. They lost to San McCullough, who transferred to Oklahoma. So they've lost a lot of guys. Um, and they'd already seen 20 players that actually entered the portal since Tom Allen was fired. Uh, that includes a few offensive linemen. It includes a quarterback in Brendan Sorsby, who threw 15 touchdowns last year. So there's reason to believe that Signetti will be able to find those pieces, but it won't be as easy as one might assume. You think about, too, the Big Ten and the ever-changing landscape that is the Big Ten, with USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington joining next year, how much further down the totem pole does Indiana get get pushed? The good news is Kurt Signetti is a veteran coach, and there will be some challenges. <laughs> There's no denying that. Uh, this is a group that hasn't won a conference title since 1967. And while Signetti hasn't been at a Power 5 school since 2010, there might be a little bit of a learning curve. But I'm cautiously optimistic that with his evaluation of talent, his identity that was very clear at James Madison and Elon, uh, I think they'll be in a really good position to improve greatly than they were there kind of sputtering towards the end of the Tom Allen tenure. All right, one big question for Mississippi State. Will Jeff Levy's offense be top five in the SEC? Easy answer, no. Long-term answer, I think if we average it out over the course of time, I'm really optimistic (laughs) because ever since Jeff Levy has either been in the SEC or been a play caller at Oklahoma, UCF, uh, in his time at Ole Miss, and they've always been really dang good. I mean, ever since he became the offensive coordinator at the FBS level in 2019, he's led all active offensive coordinators in 50-plus point games. He has 14 of those. At Oklahoma, where he was most recently, they ranked third nationally in scoring offense at 43.2 points per game. Now, he's got a great history of being able to work with quarterbacks and get the most out of quarterbacks as well. He's got great experience having been in the state of Mississippi, having worked as the offensive coordinator for Lane Kiffin. So he's recruited the state. He's familiar with the state. But there are some challenges becoming a first-time head coach in a league that is about as difficult as it gets. 
<laughs> you think about his contributions to Ole Miss, sure, they were great, and the offense was excellent. But they never really could quite get over the hump. And you think, too, with the exception of Dak Prescott, and, and Will Rogers had a great career, statistically speaking, but that was more system, I think, than personnel. Mississippi State has been able to attract, at least in recent years, some really key pieces at the wide receiver spot. They've done a pretty good job in evaluating the quarterback position as well. Now, they went out and they got Blake Shapitz, so I think they should be okay at the quarterback spot. Shapitz had some ups and downs, but he does have some talent. But I think anytime a guy's in a first-time head coaching job, there's going to be a mistake or two. Even the best coaches in the sport have some growing pains early in their career as a head coach. And I think back even to when Kirby Smart became the head coach at Georgia. It wasn't perfectly seamless in the first three years there in Athens. Granted, he almost won a national championship in 2017. Came a play in overtime on second and 26 away from potentially winning a national championship. But in 2018, there were a couple challenges. In 2016, his first year, there were a couple challenges. So there might be a little bit of a challenging learning curve because Jeff Levy won't have the roster that Kirby Smart inherited in 2016. I'm really optimistic, but I think early on to expect him to jump right in to become a top five offense in the SEC, that's a difficult thing for me to anticipate right now. All right, let's head back up to the Big Ten here. One big question for Michigan State. Can Jonathan Smith get the Spartans back to winning football? I think they can. I think this uh, is as good of a hire as we've seen in the sport this year. I think you look at just, you're going to rank the hires, right? Jonathan Smith and Kalen DeBoer, to me, are like 1A, 1B. I love this hire for Michigan State. Now, what Jonathan Smith has done a great job of, he comes from the Coach Peterson, you know, the Boise State-Washington coaching tree. So he has done a great job of keeping a keen eye on the under-the-radar talent. He understands the player development piece. He also wanted a program at Oregon State that most people thought was a very difficult place to consistently find success, but he did so by morphing the offense into a pro-style physical rushing attack. Now, you're not going to be able to just run it down people's throats in the Big Ten. It's just not going to happen. The defenses are too good, and they're too proud against the run. But I think Jonathan Smith is one of those super aware coaches that respects the opposition while still maintaining their own offensive identity. That's a tough thing to balance, a really tough thing to balance. I know this. I know that Michigan State's going to be tough as nails on offense. I don't know how much talent they're going to have, how many points they're going to have, but I can promise you they're going to be tough as nails. And if you look at what they've been on the defensive side these last couple of years, that's been what's most troubling. Because if you look at Michigan State, uh, Michigan State ranks 81st among all FBS teams in yards allowed per game. They were 68th in rushing yards allowed and 85th in passing yards allowed. Now, that's not good. And I think he's going to have to retool the offense a little bit. And their offense, I think, is going to have to probably play a little defense from time to time. They're going to play complementary football, which will be really beneficial. Now, here's the one question I have. Jonathan Smith, and we all make a big deal about fit, right? Fit. To me, a fit is a guy that wins. 
And while Jonathan Smith, who's 44 years old, he's never coached outside of the Pacific Northwest, I think you have one of the best coaches in the country. I really believe that. Now, there's some unrest and everything like that. I think this is a terrific hire, and I can't wait to see what they look like offensively and defensively because there's going to be quite a few tweaks on both sides of the ball. All right, staying in the Big Ten, Northwestern. Can David Braun build off the surprise eight wins from the 23 season? Well, I think I look at, at what David Braun pulled off this past year. It was one of the most unbelievable coaching jobs. You look at the roster. The roster was not that bad. Now, a lot of people looked at it, and they were 1-11 in 2012. Coach Fitzgerald got fired. They could have had a bunch of guys lead. They lost only four guys in the portal, actually, after Coach Fitzgerald was fired. But David Braun was able to go in and steady the ship. But if you talk to people that are familiar with the program, the roster was kind of ready and they were kind of coiled after a disappointing 22 season to take a big step this past year. Now, there's a ton of uncertainty. There's a ton of uncertainty. And the next two years, you know, Ryan Fields being completely rebuilt. But I can tell you this, David Braun will get those guys to play as hard as humanly possible. They're going to play really hard, really hard. I think they made the right hire under the circumstances because this is one way to at least continue to unite the roster to an extent, but it's going to be challenging because they lost a lot of really good players off of this past year's team. A lot of guys that bought in, a lot of guys that now have graduated, several guys that were fifth and sixth year players are now moving on. So it's going to be a challenge, but I think David Braun has a good defensive scheme that they run. They run a lot of Tampa 2. You don't see a ton of it, but it's very effective. That North Dakota State tree is catching everyone's attention, by the way. Chris Kleiman, of course, the head coach at Kansas State, amazing. Matt Entz became the defensive coordinator, the head coach at North Dakota State. He is now the defensive coordinator at USC. We'll talk a lot about him over the course of the offseason because I think he's one of the integral pieces to the college football conversation here in 2024. But I think David Braun and that style of defense can live, but you got to be really good along the front defensively. They have a couple good players for sure, but they don't have the depth. Can they establish the depth and can they develop players the way they did under Pat Fitzgerald? Because if they can, then I think they can be a perennial bowl team, but it's going to be really tough in an ever-changing landscape in the Big Ten. When the Big Ten West has now blown up and gone away, Northwestern's path to six wins has now gotten much more challenging. Okay, moving out west to Oregon State. One big question. Can Trent Bray keep Oregon State with a winning record? This was a no-doubt hire to me, Uh, partly because you want stability. Two, because with all due respect to Oregon State, there's a lot of unknowns about taking that job. You go take that job, there's no telling what conference Oregon State's going to be in, who they're going to be playing against. There's a lot of question marks surrounding. So you try to maintain as much stability as you possibly can. So you go and hire the guy that's been in charge of the defense that has really flipped the script on the defensive side of the football since he took over a couple years back. They've ranked number two in the Pac-12 in scoring defense in each of the last two years. And a bowl win, uh, a bowl win obviously would is, is something that you could pr- pretty much all, all you could ask for right now. I mean, if they can get to the playoff, goodness gracious alive, that's amazing. So I think Bray deserves a ton of credit for what's happened there with the success that they've had here 
in recent years. But you're looking into kind of an unprecedented period. Um, and that, I think, is something that's really challenging. Now, you had an alumni of the school that just opted to leave, who was the head coach, just opted to leave for another place. I think that's a challenging aspect of it. And as an alum, I mean, he's someone that the fan base can easily rally behind during a tumultuous period for the team, for the athletic department, for the university as a whole. So it's going to be some uncertainty that he's going to have to navigate through. He knows the program inside and out uh, as a former player and a two-time assistant. Uh, he's seen Oregon State as a Pac-10, as a Pac-12 member. He's seen him in the Power 5 Conference. But I think he's going to have to keep the current roster intact as much as he possibly can and continue to develop the way they did under the previous staff. Well, previous staff <laughs> under Jonathan Smith <laughs> because he, of course, was a part of the previous staff. So I think he's a really strong candidate to take over the roots in the program, uh, maintain continuity, very popular amongst the fans, but a first-time head coach like I've talked about already, that can be challenging. There might be a bit of a learning curve there for Trent Bray. And last but certainly not least, the Syracuse Orange. Will it hurt that Fran Brown has no head coaching or coordinator experience? There's an age-old adage, uh, players over plays. <laughs> okay, Fran Brown got the job because of one reason. It's not his exo acumen. It's not his ability to put players in position and kind of tinker with the pieces on the chessboard. He got in there because he's a terrific recruiter. And he's going to have to recruit and retain players better than his predecessor if they're going to be really successful. Now, if you already look at the time that, or kind of how it's gone down in, in a short period of time, they've already done a pretty good job of attracting some key pieces. But if you look at the last couple of years, they've had good seasons. I mean, there are really, really good seasons. They don't have crazy NIL structure in place to compete with some of the schools there in the ACC. So they've lost some top-tier talent to other Power 5 schools. They lost Deuce Chestnut last year to LSU. They lost Jahad Carter, Jahad Carter, excuse me, to Ohio State. They lost Jatias Greer to South Carolina. So athletic director John Wildhack understands that while they might not have as much competitiveness from an NIL standpoint, Brown will be able to create the relationships that will get guys to consider Syracuse when they might not be able to pay the same amount as some of the other schools. Now, some people were surprised by this. And, and to be honest with you, I, I was a little bit too. I thought Bob Chesney was going to be the guy. I thought a couple other people might potentially get it. But I think this was a really big coup because of his recruiting powers. And we've already seen Kyle McCord. We've seen a handful of others. Others that would have never considered Syracuse in the past are now considering Syracuse because of the relationships that Fran Brown has created the past few years recruiting on behalf of Georgia. So I think it'll be really interesting. And I, I'm going to evaluate him more in, in the season, sure. We'll evaluate his XO and his approach and, and all those things during the season. But he's really going to make his money at the end of December during signing period, in February during signing period, in May when the portal opens up again, you can sign again. That's when I'm really going to be evaluating because it does feel like their roster could be on the upswing with some of the players he's been able to attract. The portal door remains open in Tuscaloosa as multiple players announced just in the last 24 hours that they will be entering the portal. Their destination at the moment is unknown, but a couple of guys that we want to talk about today. The notable headliner is Caleb Downs. 
excellent safety, just an all-world player, second-team All-American as a true freshman, started all 14 games for Alabama this past year. He's the first freshman uh, from Alabama to lead the team in tackles in program history. 107 tackles. We're 40 more than second place Deontay Lawson. Now, Lawson missed some time, but still, they were the fourth most in the SEC, and they were most by a tied freshman in the last 50 years. He also had 70 solo tackles, which was the most in the conference in 2023, and was 14th among all FBS players. So he's an amazing player, an amazing player. I think all indications are that he's going to Georgia. I think you can probably book that. I'm sure other players and other teams will probably try to reach out. But I'd be surprised if he goes anywhere other than Athens. I think Ohio State will probably be a player as well. But this is a massive loss for Kalen DeBoer and the Crimson Tide. Not just because of what he does on the field, but he's also an elite teammate and a great culture builder. One of the best guys. You talk to anybody in that locker room, he's one of the best guys on the roster. So it hurts to lose him significantly, especially hurts to lose him to an in-conference rival, which it appears that's where he's heading. They also lost Caden Proctor, their starting left tackle. Proctor had a tough year. Uh, Excellent player, very talented, probably a little bit too big at the moment. He's like 6'8", 360 or so. And if you look at what Kalen DeBoer used at Washington, their offensive line relied a little bit more on athleticism as opposed to brute strength. Caden Proctor struggled in pass protection all season long. So him jumping in the portal was not a massive surprise. It is an indicator, though, of a new regime in Tuscaloosa because those two, along with many others, have now jumped in the portal. Downs was actually the seventh tied defensive back to enter the portal since the December window opened and the fourth since Nick Saban retired. They lost three starters in the secondary, two to the NFL draft. So 10 guys in the back end for Alabama will no longer be there. But some other players that have entered the portal since the December window opened. Tyler Buckner, he's a quarterback. He's going back to Notre Dame. He's going to be playing lacrosse. But depth at the position, you always want more. You can never have enough. Tyler Buckner is no longer there. Ja'Cory Brooks is a wide receiver transferred to Louisville. Isaiah Hastings, a defensive lineman, transferred to Syracuse. And Quinn Barnes transferred to Colorado. He's a defensive lineman. Shaz Preston transferred to Tulane. Miles Kitzelman, tight end, transferred to Tennessee. Terrence Ferguson, possibly a starter along the offensive line this year, was a backup this past year, but a really physical, big, strong, athletic guard. He's transferring to Florida State. I thought that was a great pickup for Florida State. Seth McLaughlin, the center. He's transferring to Ohio State. He was a center. Eli Holstein, backup quarterback. He's transferred to Pitt. Christian Story was a defensive back. He's transferring to Kentucky. Malik Benson was a wide receiver. Thought he would have a bigger year last year. We spent quite a bit of time on him in the offseason. Juco player that you thought might boom. It didn't materialize, but he's now transferring to Florida State. Hopefully he can kind of maybe pick up a little bit more from what he did this past season. Earl Little, uh, a defensive back, great depth, solid corner safety, hybrid nickel. Him being gone is big. He's transferring to Florida State. Monkel Goodwine's transferring to South Carolina. He's a he's a defensive lineman. Roy Dell Williams, running back, Florida State. Jake Pope, defensive back, Georgia. Kendrick Blackshire, Texas, linebacker. Isaiah Bond, wide receiver, Texas. Des Ricks, defensive back, AM. So a bunch of guys that have jumped in the portal. It's significant. 
It is really significant from a depth standpoint. Why? Because Alabama cannot at the moment fill all those pieces. Now, the portal will open up again in May, and I would expect Alabama to be a heavy hitter that time on the calendar, but that's pretty close to the season. So you'll have to really accelerate the development of those guys and understanding what you're doing offensively and defensively to have them feeling really comfortable when you take the field there in September in week number one. So a lot of people leaving Tuscaloosa right now, but it's to be expected. Nick Saban retires, a new guy's in charge, out with the old, in with the new. That's the way it kind of goes. It's understandable, but it is disappointing and concerning, I think, for Alabama fans all over the country. Another piece of information that came down this week, Talia Tungavailoa, quarterback from Maryland who had entered the transfer portal, was petitioning the NCAA to try to get a sixth year. He unfortunately had his waiver denied. He played in five games in 2018. That fifth game was against Mississippi State. It was an ode to his brother who got hurt the year before. Excuse me, it was in 2020 where he played. It was an ode to his brother who got hurt the year before against Mississippi State, played in five games that year, and as a result, he lost his eligibility. It's really a big bummer, man. Hate this, that his career had to end like this, but he played five years. It's quite a bit of time, and he leaves as the Big Ten career record holder in passing yards with over 11,000 passing yards. He has a school record for touchdowns with 76 in four years played there for the Maryland Terrapins. So hate that this went down the way it did. Hope him the very best, but he's now entering the NFL drafts where maybe he'll latch on with the Miami Dolphins to join his brother, Tua Tungabailoa, who is the the starting quarterback down there in South Florida. And then finally, Ross Bjork, the former athletic director of Texas A&M, is now the athletic director at Ohio State. This is pretty significant if you're into the athletic director conversation. Partly because Bjork's had a few different jobs along the way. He was at Ole Miss for quite a while. And then he went to AM and now he goes to Ohio State. One thing that Ross Bjork, and I've known Ross for really a long time now, really like the guy. He's an excellent fundraiser. So in the NIL era, being able to raise revenue is really important. That's what he excels at. So it'll be fascinating to see how he does there in Columbus, continuing to create the machine that is the collective for the Ohio State Buckeyes. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Continue to ask all of you to like, rate, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your show. You can also get the podcast, download it wherever you want, leave us a rating, leave us a subscription, whatever you want to do there. Subscribe to the ESPN College Football YouTube channel. That'd be terrific as well. So for all of us here at Always College Football, we'll be back on Monday with more news and notes from the weekend, because I'm sure, based on the way things are moving right now, there's going to be a lot to update you on after a few-day break when guys have time to take some visits and go see what else might be out there for them as their future continues to move forward. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Jack, Jake, Mark, the other Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day, and remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.